I'm sorry. I'm celebrating. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. Hello, hello. Happy Friday, everyone. Almost the holiday weekend. Woo, woo. Oh, yeah. Happy birthday, America. Liz, where's the music, Liz? Um, sorry, I was just uh, waking up El Pente. One second here. Whoops, I was muted. That's why. Got it. Can you hear? Minica was jamming hear it vaguely. It. <laughs> My bad. Are we echoing? Because I'm with Jason right now. Oh, what are you guys smoking yeah, yeah. on? Something good. Only the, the best, best weed in the, in the world. world. That was an echo. I almost thought you guys were were uh, doing that together. <laughs> Look, I'm turning mine off. How about that? How about now? Am I echoing? Am I echoing loud from the hills? You sound real good, buddy. You said all good, Stone? All good. Happy Friday, everybody. <laughs> the new, new good people. Good morning, good morning, everyone. Thank you so much. Um, let's see. Well, let's get started. Hello and hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. We're a group of experts in different cannabis spaces with a diversity of perspectives and life experiences. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It is Friday, July 1st, 2022. This is episode number 314. Wow. I'm Liz Rogan, a biologist, botanist, and full-on canna nerd. I've worn many hats in the cannabis industry, but I'm currently working as a brand strategist, wellness consultant, and event planner. And I have the honor of standing in today for the founder of Care and cannabis's favorite grandma, Susan Sores, aka Nanogram. The State of Cannabis News Hour is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific on Clubhouse. <clears throat> Excuse me, but we will not be here on Monday. We'll be taking the day off. So please spark it up with us and over 31,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you would like to be an audience participant. If you're listening to the podcast, thank you for checking us out. <clears throat> Help other cannabis lovers find us by sharing, subscribing, and leaving us a review. Today, we have a lot of juicy nuggets for you. We are talking about edibles in Minnesota, dual use of the Cannabis Task Force, Delta 8 regulations, cannabis and opioid interactions, and many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. Course language and nudity. Viewer Sorry. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. 
Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you'd like to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll do our best to bring you up on the stage. Please keep it brief and relevant, or you may get the gong. Sorry, I was running back from that gong. Kicking off the show today is Rico Lamite. This self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is one of the most amazing men I've met in the cannabis industry. He is the sticky, icky glue that holds our team together and shows up every weekday as one of our co-producers. He keeps his highly calibrated bullshit meter in the stash pocket of his hemp hoodie. Enrico always asks the tough questions that mainstream media refuses to ask. He won't back down in the face of uh, any authentic cannabis, and he will turn any hallway into a theme park to bring a smile to his kiddo's face. So join us every day, every weekday, and Rico will be here as a co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. So let's start smoking the news. What do you have for us today, Rico? What's happening, Liz? Appreciate the uh, intro there. I'm reporting live from Green Street with my man Jason back to my left. The only oh, time, yeah. The only time he will be to the left of me. But uh, my story is coming from MJ Moment by Kyle Yeager. It's up to Biden to direct mass clemency for marijuana cases, U.S. pardon attorney says. The recently appointed U.S. Uh, pardon attorney Elizabeth Oyer did not take much time to place blame on cannabis clemency in action under the Biden administration on, can I get a drum roll please, Jason? <laughs> Joe Biden. At an event hosted by Justice Roundtable, a coalition of criminal justice reform organizations Thursday, Oyer said it's up to President Joe Biden to initiate a process of granting mass clemency for people with nonviolent federal cannabis convictions. She went on to say generally the Justice Department pardon office reviews relief petitions individually before making recommendations to the president. However, a categorical pardon for federal cannabis records, if possible, uh, if the president takes action alone. So far, Joe's, uh, President Biden's commuted a grand total of 75 cannabis convictions since he's been in office, far less uh, than what advocates have asked for and, um, or most would consider it adequately fulfilling his campaign promises to support decriminalization. He also said oh, that, he does, that he does not believe anyone should be incarcerated over nonviolent cannabis offenses. Hmm. The failure to act on those promises will be met with an increasing number of previous Biden supporters joining fringe far-right chants of let's go Brandon. And we all know what that shit means. But really, what the fuck is really going on, Joe? Come on, man. Per the article, Oyer said, Oyer did say that her office makes clemency recommendations. When they do, it does take into account broad categories of policy objectives or criminal justice reform goals or uh, racial justice objectives. And cannabis cases represent an example of such a category because they have, quote, some sort of cohesive common characteristics. So we're absolutely taking into consideration those categories and those policy objectives and those ra uh, racial equity objectives, but we don't look at cases in a batch without individualized review, Oyer said. Uh, we do look at every single case individually. At the event, the pardon attorney also offered advice to advocates on filing clemency petition applications and addressed the the backlog of cases under review. Formerly incarcerated advocate for criminal justice reform, Weldon Angelos, uh, received a pardon from Trump in 2020. He's since become a thought leader in the lane for change and voiced his opinion to the MJ moment at Thursday's event. 
It's up to President Biden to honor his campaign promise and instruct those involved in the clemency process to prioritize cannabis cases. There is no other group more deserving in the, uh, of relief than those who are incarcerated for something that society no longer considers criminal. I remain hopeful that Joe Biden will follow through on his campaign pledge to release those serving federal prison time for cannabis offenses and pardon their convictions. Right on, brother. Uh, finally, per the article, Rahul Gupta, Director of Office of National Drug Policy, um, said earlier this month that uh, the Biden administration is monitoring states that have legalized marijuana to inform federal policy, recognizing the failures of current prohibitionist approach. So yeah, it's like a parent watching their kids stick a knife in an electrical socket over and over and over again before determining what kind of outlet cover they should invest in. We're halfway through 2022, and this is what leadership looks like in America with Joe Biden. We recently reported on the numbers discrepancy between data sourced by the DEA and FBI, leading to confusion about if arrests were up or down under the Biden administration. They use different metrics, and neither aligns perfectly with the state-sourced data either. But for what it's worth, the DEA reported June uh, in June, law federal agents made 6,606 marijuana-related arrests in 2021, a 25% increase over 2020's reported 4,992 arrests. Uh, the FBI, their last uh, data dump was in 2020, uh, listing possession arrests at 226,748. Well, sales arrests were at 23,139. DPA says every 90 seconds, another person in America is arrested for a marijuana offense. So if that still holds uh, accurate, that's 960 arrests a day, 6,720 per week, 29,120 per month, and 349,440 per year. I know this first... I know the first thing conservatives want to say when folks like me scream over and over and over again, free them all, but our society can't support that type of action. It's dangerous to release so many people at once. Our communities won't be safe. You know, my response is it was your racist ass policies that got us to where we are currently effectively extending slavery to prisoners of the failed war on drugs. It's your continued racist ass policies that unfairly keep these people behind bars while carpetbaggers and chads take over the failed corporate version of legalized cannabis. This is a you problem to fix. You got the power to free these modern slaves. Since officially re-entering this industry in 2016, I've never wavered in my activism, my advocacy on this plant and industry needing to be an equitable opportunity to help right the wrongs done by the illegal and racist war on drugs waged on communities of color. As we head into yet another phase of our young industry, most likely under Republican-controlled narrative, we should all look past the left and the right politics and be in lockstep with our messaging if we truly want action on freeing these prisoners and reuniting them with their families, friends, and communities they were stolen from. Let's go, Brandon. Get it fixed. This is Rico Lumit, dopest dad on the street for the State of Canada's News Hour. Back to you, team. Yo, Rico coming in hot this morning, fucking blazing those guns out. Love that shit, Rico. That was a really good story, Rico. Thank you so much. I agree with you 100%, man. 100%. Do something. Jesus. Oh, yeah. We got to get these people out of jail. Thank you, Weldon Angelos, for all of your tireless efforts towards this effort. I know how hard you work on this, and I know how optimistic you are that the Biden administration will do something about this. I'm not too optimistic. Um, he's had a chance to do it. Um, uh, we can hope. But um, it, it, there's no time like the present. Um, just do it. <laughs> Stop talking about it and do it.
free these prisoners right now. Let them out. And that's why the safe banking sounds good and looks good on paper. But if it doesn't include expungement and releasing everyone out of prison, then that's the hard line that cannot be crossed. Like, you of, cannot. Of course it doesn't include that. It's called past safe banking. It's not social equity. It, it's not about social equity. It's about social justice. You cannot allow people to legally come into a banking industry and, and still have people sitting in prison. First of all, all the MSOs already have banking. This bill is going to help more minority businesses be able to strip away from their predatory investors with the social equity bullshit scheme that we currently have going on in many states. Ah, safe what, banking. Why don't, we, why, don't, why don't we stay on the topic that uh, Rico brought up, eh? Right. Like, fuck safe banking, number one. And I say this with Jason right next to me. Fuck safe, fuck safe banking. banking. Just stay on topic. Pass safe banking. I leave it to Jason Beck on a topic that I agree with him on. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Controversy, baby. Everybody else want to comment on it? Nah, let's keep it moving. Let's move away because we've lost our way here. Let's get go. closer to the mic and let's keep smoking this news. You're bogarting that. In London, as the boost tree is below in the longest continuously operating retailer in the industry, with an affinity for the best in the world, identification and eradication of boost worldwide. Right next to me right now, looking like the white keys on the piano. <laughs> Jason. Alexander's back. What do you have for us today? Oh, yeah, Rico. Thank you so much. Hope everyone is having a fantastic Friday. And nonetheless, California was winning yesterday with our elimination of the cultivation tax. And today, guess what state is winning? That's right, Virginia. I bet none of you saw that one coming because there's major changes in Virginia's marijuana laws that take effect today. That's right, July 1st, three days away from our country's birthday. New laws take effect July 1st in Virginia, and one of them will make it easier for people to purchase medical cannabis. Current law requires a medical cannabis card issued by the Virginia Board of Pharmacy, but starting Friday, patients will only need a written certification from a registered practitioner. It's a huge win for the patients of the Commonwealth which will really help drive the medical cannabis industry in Virginia, said Trent Wolvac, chief commercial director at Juicy Holdings, one of the companies that is authorized to grow, possess, and retail medical cannabis in the state. In an interview with WDBJ Channel 7, Wolvac said the current process has created a backlog of applications. That process to get that card back was taking upwards of five to six months when your registration from your practitioner only lasted 12 months. So it was really the bottleneck in the process. Hearings during the General Assembly proceeded little or no opposition to the change. J.M. Pendy is with Normal, the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, and he says, we hear from dozens of patients each week who are trying to navigate the registration process. So this is a huge improvement and will make the process much easier for those looking to access medical cannabis in Virginia, Pendy said Thursday afternoon. July 1st will bring another change in Virginia's law that cannabis advocates were not happy to see. Public possession of more than four ounces of marijuana will now be subject to a criminal misdemeanor. 
And in the case of edible products, four ounces could represent a relatively small amount. Virginians can quickly run afoul of this new law by possessing edibles in public, Pendy said. So our advice is to leave edibles at home. Well, that's what you do when you go to the movie theater. You leave your snacks at home because they want you to shop at the concession stand and pay all those exorbitant prices. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Virginia stepping up. Do we have any uh, Virginians in the audience? I'm really curious what people get on the ground there. We did yesterday. The ghost of Rico hey, is speaking. We cannot hear you. Rico, we can't hear you. Rico, stop speaking. Rico, in the, turn your mic on. Stop speaking in the toilet, dude. Cut it out. As a former Virginian, I have to say that um, I'm anticipating the law, uh, the uh, the new regulations coming out, and I can't wait to hear from my people on the ground and, and, and get their feedback, too. Um, I know we usually have a few people from Virginia in the room. I don't know if they're in right now. If you are, please uh, comment on this. Love to hear it. Virginia is for lovers and now for weed lovers. Virginia is for edibles. Oh, Minnesota is now the edible spot for Delta 8, but we'll get to that. So let's keep smoking the news, you guys. Who's next? No one posted any PTR. That would be Nicole Buffon there, just in order. Nicole Buffon coming up next to the stage. Oh, that's because you're up here, Nicole. Nicole Buffong, our newest addition to the team, is coming to the stage next. She's a cannabis patient, plant medicine advocate, and Roz McCarthy's right-hand woman on the left coast for marijuana for MM, or Minorities for Medical Marijuana. Also the founder of Purple Plant Magic, national brand ambassador for Black Buddha Cannabis, and the Encyclopedia on Power 88 in Las Vegas, Nevada, every Wednesday morning. It's none other than Nicole Buffon. Aloha. Good morning, everyone. I am no longer on the island, but it was such a great experience. Um, so I'm here to give a recap of the dual use of cannabis force task force meeting. Um, SLH 2021 Act 169 um, was passed and the Office of Medical Cannabis Control and Regulation um, shall convene a task force to explore the development of a dual system program of legalization for cannabis and the impacts of legalization of cannabis on qualifying patients, including access to medical cannabis by, medical, by qualifying patients. The Office of Medical Cannabis Control and Regulation shall submit a report of its findings and recommendations, including any proposed legislation to the legislator no later than 20 days prior to the convening of the regular session of 2023. So that's what this task force was formed to do, to create recommendations to give to the legislative group. All of the meetings are open to the public and will be held on the fourth Monday of each month and will be in person at the Hawaii State Art Museum with remote access via Zoom. Dr. Sue Sicily was meeting with the Admiral at Tripler Army Base and was not able to make the meeting in person, but she called in via Zoom and part of her comments included. I've, this is from Dr. Sue Sicily. I've served as volunteer medical director for over 40 MJ licenses in 18 states over the past 11 years. 
Most important is to maintain a legal framework for patient co-ops. The prices of the licensed dispensaries are exorbitant and impossible for sick patients to afford. So the most crucial step you can take is guaranteeing that patient co-ops and home grow always have a vibrant, fortified legal status within the program in perpetuity. They, they should never be allowed to be removed from the industry as it continues to grow. The first thing that happens once you convert to, to adult use um, ask, most of the local license holders will sell their license or just board seats to the larger corporate behemoths, Curaleaf, Verano, Trulief. Then they terminate their medical staff, such as pharmacists, nurses, et cetera, that were hired as window dressing for their license application. In fact, these medical staff prove to be valuable consultants and should be preserved to ensure medical patients can receive sound advice from operators, uh, end quote. The agenda on Monday included a presentation on the status of federal preemption relating to cannabis. Devon Ward, senior legislative counsel for Marijuana Policy Project made that presentation. Um, they also discussed issues not included in the scope of the five established working groups that should be identified for future consideration and study by the legislator. The permitted interaction groups, which shorthand is PIG, which is a terrible name, um, include the tax working group, the social equity working group, the market structure working group, the medical use working group, and the public health and safety working group. One of the biggest concerns expressed by local advocates, May and Al, is that the, is that the white man, Randy Gantz, who has been assigned as chair for the social equity panel, is executive director of Hawaii Cannabis Industry Coalition, and no one else on the committee is a person of color or a native. In my comments on Monday, I recommended that there be an agricultural group that would include local cultivators to discuss pre preservation of genetics from the state, as well as recommending that the state mandate terpene testing, and of course, supporting Dr. Sue's recommendations on how to maintain a healthy medical program by preserving co-op and home grow. M4MM will be watching this process with a magnifying glass, and with new leadership in the state, we will be hosting town halls to allow vo local voices to be heard. My name is Nicole Buffon. I'd love to hear what my um, co fellow correspondents think about this story. This was a great story. Thank you so much. I know there is, this is kind of more of like not exactly a breaking news headline in terms of what we do, but I really loved hearing this. And I love Sue Sisley. Just had to say thank you for all you do, Sue Sisley. Agreed. Love her too. Um, she was fired up um, at this meeting and, and so fired up and they were so impressed by her comments that they asked her to come back and do a presentation. Um, so that's going to be invaluable to that task force as they start to form and discuss adult use in the state of Hawaii. Um, but it's very important for us to remember that these people that were selected um, to be on the head of these committees um, were selected. They weren't elected. Um, they None of the people that are local tried to apply to become a part of these committees and they were denied. So some of these committee meetings will not be in public. And so we'll be watching this process very carefully because we feel like all the meetings should be held in, in the public space. Um, and we're going to make a big stink about it if they're not. That's awesome. I can't wait to hear more about this. This is pretty crazy. But let's keep smoking the news. I, I smell a stinker coming, but nonetheless, this doctor has been around so long that he probably wrote your parents' medical cannabis recommendation. This doctor has had more patients than liberals waiting in line at a President Biden book signing, founder of Medican and co-founder of the CESC, 
the nonprofit cannabis research organization. It's none other than Dr. Gene Talleyrand. Thanks, Jason. Uh, good morning, everyone. Good afternoon for those in the East Coast. My headline is another medical marijuana patient describes ongoing problems with price, service, and access by Will Fritz of the New York Cannabis Insider. This sto story is part of an ongoing series that elevates the voices of New York's medical cannabis patients. Shortly after New York legalized recreational cannabis last year, patients and advocates began sounding the alarm about the state's handling of medical cannabis, alleging New York's medical program was being left to rot while regulators focused instead on the adult use market. Christopher, a 25-year-old medical cannabis patient from Long Island, uses cannabis to treat PTSD. Christopher says he has trouble getting accurate and helpful information from bud tenders at medical cannabis dispensaries. When asking for recommendations on what products he can use to best treat his condition, he says he's often met with little more than a shrug. It's like going to CVS, but the people at the pharmacy are like the people at the checkout, he said. It might even be something he would just accept, but Christopher has encountered staff who are much more knowledgeable at medical dispensaries in other states. In New York, it's like they're just here to sell the stuff, says Christopher. You're working with medical patients who rely on this medication. There should be a level of professionalism. Christopher has also encountered privacy issues at his main dispensary, where his PTSD is plainly labeled on the outside of the package when he purchases products. They'll put your issue on your package right on display for everyone, he said. Christopher also complains that it's difficult to find affordable dispensaries. He has visited other states where the pricing is significantly cheaper. When I went to Maine, I was able to get a full gram cartridge for like $15. The same product, he said, would be as much as $100 more at his usual dispensary in New York. Christopher acknowledges that it makes some sense that a state with a higher cost of living in general is going to have more expensive medical cannabis than in states where it is less expensive to live. Still, the, the difference seems outrageous. Is it a $100 difference, says Christopher? I don't think so. Like other patients, Christopher also complains about delays and problems with the Office of Cannabis Management, especially regarding the fact that home cultivation has not been adopted. It's crazy that you, that you still can't grow your own, says Christopher. What's the OCM going to do? They're going to break into my garage and take it? Charging high prices, making cannabis less accessible, and having a lack of professionalism are all issues that are ongoing in, in, in California and other states. You would hope that states would be able to learn from each other, but this can't happen when California, the original state, hasn't evolved. In California, we complain about poor regulation, yet the industry does not try to elevate its own standards. Regulators didn't coin the term bud tender, the cannabis industry did. Dispensary owners could put some effort into hiring staff that knows science and understands dosing. The idea of reintroducing cannabis as a viable and valuable commodity started with compassion and a notion of helping others. As a cannabis community and industry, we were able to change the laws. 
it's not up to the regulators. They follow our lead. With supplies at a surplus, it's up to the industry to drop prices. Education and professionalism are an attitude and are not costly. For the sake of the patients who have inspired us to reintroduce cannabis to the world, it's up to the cannabis industry and community to evolve to a better place. What do you think? This is Dr. Jean Talleyrand for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Oh my goodness, thank you so much, Doc, for this story. This is exactly what Dr. Sue was talking about in her comments in Hawaii. Um, every state that has adopted an adult use program, they leave the medical program behind. The medical patients are left behind. And in order to really curve leaving medical patients behind, the solution is co-ops. The solution is home grow. And it cannot, it, it's so difficult to, you know, try to adopt the home grow after the, the uh, legislation has been written, but that's what's going to be necessary to preserve a, a decent medical program. And, and keeping on staff, doctors, actual doctors and pharmacists and nurses that have studied the plan and studied the different diagnoses and can make actual medical recommendations, not bud tenders alone. Nicole, I would agree that the home grow needs to be available. That sounds right. But, um, you know, f forcing patients to grow their own medicine seems to be a little bit onerous uh, for, for patients, right? What about the idea of simply opening medical dispensaries to adult use automatically when, when adult use becomes legalized? Because otherwise, the, the weight of having to get a dispensary uh, or getting it, get your medical card and getting the approval and all that becomes a burden to the patients when adult use is available. That's the thing that kills medical. Why not just open it up to them automatically? All the patients oh. in New York should boycott all of these bullshit medical marijuana facilities in New York and just go shop at your local fucking uh, food truck around the corner on 45th and whatever. Or just go to your local bodega because your prices okay. are going to be way cheaper there. That's not helpful. That's okay, not Chris, you're absolutely not you're he absolutely not right, helpful, Jason. At all, you're absolutely be right, clear. Christopher. It should be it should be um, keeping a medical um, at least a medical uh, facility open, but also co-ops like allowing allowing what is happening in Hawaii is there's been a medical co-op that's been in operation legally there, and he and Jason has been providing care while Luau has been providing. Um, safe medicine for patients that can't afford um, to grow their own medicine. So, you guys, well, I, I could weigh in on this. I, I think that there, I want to be clear. I don't believe in the word medical v recreational. What cannabis is wellness, and as we know it in the traditional market, it is a wellness product that people use when they need it for medicinal medical, medicinal reasons. The real answer is not co-ops. It's our country needs to accept cannabis into the medical regime so doctors can prescribe it so that your insurance can cover it but moreover we need to let universities really start to research so we can actually get medical cannabis the problem is we providers like myself like even jason beck have been providing safe <laughs> access but that's not enough doctors need to get their head in the game they need to get traditional research and we need to start to progress this plant medicine to the true full medicine that it can be right now i look at cannabis as over the counter and i think it should be fair pricing for all who need wellness access like we would advil or tylenol but we want when we want to elevate it to the medical level let's get real research and let's get doctors head in the game to really start to prescribe this for patients. But most importantly, why is our healthcare services not providing this awesome non-toxic alternative to so much of the other bullshit that's covered? That's real medical to me. Agreed, preach. Hell yeah. I'm with you, I'm with you on all of that, Guy. Partly, Guy, uh, this is Dr. T. 
Partly the problem is that it's a new paradigm to prescribe a multi-agent botanical is completely out of the, it's, it's going to take years to figure that out. Meanwhile, yeah. we need something in between. It's so true, doctor. And, you know, I've had this conversation with other physicians. Like, I don't accept the notion of plant-based medicine being a multi, I don't, I forget the word you use, but lots of other analgesics are used for different ailments. Most analgesics have a 40-ish percent side effect rate. That means it doesn't work for a part of the population. Plant medicine is also inaccurate, but let's assume that pharma is also inaccurate, right? It's That's... not consistent medicine for everybody. So I don't know that it's a new paradigm. I just think that the pharma people that back our current medical institution don't know how to make money with somebody something somebody might be able to provide for themselves. Not to mention, too, fun pharma fact is that all pharmaceutical drugs are only made to actually help 10% of the population that, 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 that actually suffer from each individual ailment that a medicine is supposed to help for. There's an old uh, paradigm of herbalism that sits be between pharmacology and what we're doing right now that we could use. Uh, and, you know, it's something that's been around for ages. We used to use plants to treat our illnesses, and we could go back to understanding how that worked. Good morning, everyone. This is Andy. Um, not to oversimplify, just back to one of the earlier points of the article was uh, regarding the bud tenders and the professionalism, and I could not agree more. And while there are many um, very, very, very good dispensaries that do train um, and and do approach the clients from the you know the um, wellness standpoint and are very knowledgeable, for the most part, you're right. There are a lot there. Are are many unprofessional bud tenders that are um, under under trained and not very knowledgeable or simply don't care but what can we realistically expect when we pay them minimum wage in San Diego County bud tenders are paid minimum wage seriously and I'm assuming that is the the same everywhere and yet how you know we do expect knowledge and we want knowledge and we want compassion and while there might be that individual that is willing to have all that knowledge and give it and uh, for $15 an hour, which is the minimum wage here in San Diego, which is the most expensive country uh, city in the country to live right now, um, that's just ridiculous. I would love to be a bentender personally versus sitting at my computer all day. I would love it, but I can't survive on that wage. So I'm done speaking. Thank you. People are unwilling to pay those rates if they want bud tenders to be paid more money. Yeah. No, one, no one's yeah. going to be paying hundreds of dollars for an eighth just so a bud tender can make more. Well, then we can't yeah, expect and knowledge down to and customer care when we go to the counter. It's, you know, what do you, it's, you, you can't expect both. Right. That, that's exactly right, Andy. And that means people need to do their own research. When you go to Best Buy to spend five, $6,000 on electronics, do you really expect that Best Buy person to know what the everything about electronics or do you have to do your own research on the internet like when we go to retail outlets we should not expect that those folks to your point andy are making much more than minimum wage and they're not invested in necessarily that's not their career track like i don't believe that people go to bud tenders because they think they're what are they that's just an interim job so i think it's on the public to educate themselves with real information so that they go into the dispensary armed with what they're looking for and not rely on education at the butt tender level. Yeah, I mean, it, I, exactly. Got to move, though. Got to move with the time. I somewhat agree, but you don't know what you don't know, right? So, like, many people, when, when our packaging still says indica and sativa, 
and we're expecting people to know terpenes. I mean, we can't, you know what you know and what your information is out there for, and you don't know what to ask if you don't know what to ask. We happen to be like an educated community right here in this stage, but this stage is not representative of the real consumers that are out there waiting in line at the dispensary. That's all. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for your uh, for I, comments, Andy, and everybody on that conversation. We do have to keep yeah. moving, stay on time. We have a lot of stories and we got to relight it now. Love you guys. All right, let's get the relight going. Uh, all right, everybody, grab your bongs, grab your lighters, grab your pipe and your joint, and grab that consulting adent. Uh, consenting adult partner. A little pinch on the butt there for them. Let's relight this room. I know what you're smoking, but I'm smoking some bubblegum gelato. You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers and not those of any other speaker, the State of Cannabis, or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and the State of Cannabis and the speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or any authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationship. The sponsorships of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expression of any opinion whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any speaker. Viewer discretion advised. Uh, let's uh, pass this joint and smoke some more news. Let's do it. In an industry full of negativity littered with folks on both sides of the aisle aiming to lower and lower, this Texas dope added he'd be hitting the high road. Reppin' ATX, he's the, mo the host and co-creator of a new show with the exact name in collaboration with Sensi Magazine, and I can't wait to see what he's got for us today. Stone Slade, what's the news, my brother? Thank you, Rico. Today, my story is uh, actually an update from a story that Gretchen brought us back in February. You know, the problem with many things in life is a huge lack of common sense and human decency. And my story today has an enormous shortfall of both. As a country, we're in the middle of a terrible opioid crisis with emergence of legal, but the emergence of legal cannabis has helped many avoid, cut down or quit opioids altogether and with beautiful natural plant medicine. Now, before I jump into where we are today with my story, let me take you back to last October in Minnesota where the story began. Two different Minnesotans had workers' comp cases, and the cases involved a, a dental hygienist who suffered an on-the-job neck injury and an employee at an outdoor equipment dealer who'd suffered an ankle injury when an ATV had rolled over it. Both workers were certified by their doctors to use medical cannabis after other treatments to control their pain, including opioids, proved to be inadequate. Now, uh, but when these medical, so I'm sorry, <laughs> but when these medical cannabis patients sought reimbursement for their treatment, their employers refused to pay, stating that the, that, that the requirement conflicted with the Controlled Substances Act and felt by doing so, they'd be deemed to aid and abet employees in possession of a Schedule One drug. Now, the Workers' Comp uh, Court of Appeals agreed with the employees and ordered the businesses to pay up after finding that they didn't feel that the employers would be, at criminally, uh, be able to be criminally prosecuted under federal law for reimbursing their workers for participation in Minnesota's federal uh, medical cannabis program. So instead of doing the right thing, the businesses appealed to the Minnesota Supreme Court. Minnesota Supreme Court ruled last October that workers' compensation for injured employees will not cover medical marijuana because the drug remains illegal under federal law. Now, the cases were appealed again, sent all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, which is where Gretchen's story in February ended. In May, the U.S. Department of Justice weighed in and recommended that the Supreme Court should pass on hearing these cases and wait for Congress to find a solution at the federal level. Well, we all know how that's going, so it just sounds like more bullshit from the federal government and, and, the, and the mess that they created with cannabis. Now, if it smells like bullshit, it usually is bullshit. Last week, the conservative majority SCOTUS, while the conservative majority SCOTUS was busy causing havoc, 
using their own twisted religious beliefs to rip freedom away from American women under the guise of saving lives and making the world a safer place, they also found time to decline hearing these cases. I can completely understand a business legitimately having concerns about trouble from the federal level when, when the employees first sought reimbursement for their medical cannabis treatments, but I feel like that should have changed when the Workers' Compensation Court of Appeals ruled that they were at no risk. In my opinion, these businesses let common sense and decency fly out the window when they appealed the case. That's the world we live in. It's 100% okay for doctors to prescribe us dangerous addictive opioids. And in the case of uh, uh, these businesses would have no issues reimbursing their employees had they chosen to take these toxic pills over safe natural remedy that cannabis provides. The Supreme Court's out of order, the DOJ is out of order, and the federal government can't handle the truth. I'm Stone Slade, reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. The truth and the federal government in the same sentence? <laughs> I know, I know. It's... Right. Great. Great fiery story, Stone. Thanks for that. Uh, hell yeah, Stone. I can't, and I can't wait to check out that first episode, see what kind of high roads you've been hitting. Am I right? Let's keep it rolling here. This educated brand strategist and healthcare consultant and founder of the Cannabis Business Council of Santa Barbara County enjoys her fresh morning data drip to be drama free. So you better cut the crap before it crowns. But also she's in Medica had been holding it down, doing a phenomenal job behind the scenes while Nanogram was out of the building. Bring us to the stage next, Liz Rogan. What you got for us today? Thank you, Rico. And greetings, everyone. Happy Friday. Happy first day of July. And thanks for joining us today. My story comes from the Duluth News Tribune by Alex Delosier. And the headline reads, Cannabis Edibles Containing Psychoactive THC Now Legal in Minnesota. So if you're a Minnesota resident, today is an exciting day because a new law is going into effect today that allows the legal sale of THC-infused edibles at gas stations and convenience stores. But note that the products must be derived from legally certified hemp and have no more than 0.3% THC. So people 21 and older can buy products containing servings of up to 5 milligrams of THC. A single package of edibles or drinkables may not consume, contain more than 50 milligrams. Pretty low dose. So edible products will be regulated by the Minnesota Board of Pharmacy and have to be labeled showing the serving sizes, ingredients, and a warning to keep the product out of reach of children. And these consumable products cannot be shaped like people, animals, or fruit. They can't be modeled after a product marketed to children. And THC cannot be applied to existing commercially available candy or snacks or packaged to look like existing commercial snack brands. So Minnesota legalized food and drink containing THC for consumers through a bill aimed at changing state law on the regulation sale and consumption. Bill sponsor, Representative Heather Ed Edelson, um, said she was concerned about the safety of legal Delta 8 cannabis products being sold through the loophole. She says, quote, products that were targeting young people and contained thresholds of THC were that were too high for the average consumer. And also, quote, Minnesota saw poison control numbers go up dramatically in 2020 and 2021 for youth under 12 because of the lack of child safety on packaging and the appeal to the age group. Governor Tim Waltz uh, in May signed the bill, and Waltz is a supporter of uh, cannabis legalization in Minnesota, as are Democrats in the legislature. 
The bill passed in the legislature as part of a larger health package. The Republican majority in the Senate has resisted legalization, but the bill went through with a joint committee with Senate Republicans and House Democrats and then passed in both chambers. Uh, Senator Jim Abler says that doesn't legalize cannabis. We just didn't do that, end quote. And technically he's right. The new law regulates hemp only. Marin Schroeder's policy director for drug policy reform, Sensible Minnesota, explained that the new law clears up confusion on the legality of products containing CBD, which gives the state the control of testing and labeling requirements for THC-containing products that were already being sold in many stores. She said, quote, we're not legalizing cannabis, we are regulating hemp products. The industry is incredibly creative and they find every loophole they can find, and that's exactly what they did, end quote. Well, congrats to the Canicurious and cannabis consumers in Minnesota. Sounds like you'll have some low-dose, pretty boring-looking gummies. But you will know they've passed the state's testing. But what exactly does that testing entail? And at what level of scrutiny will the Delta-8 be under? Surely not parts per billion like California. Does the state even know enough to test these products? Will similar states adopt these laws? Is this just another way for the hemp industry to continue to take market share without the taxation and regulations that are imposed upon the cannabis market? I would love to hear what you guys think. I'm Liz Rogan reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. What the fuck, Minnesota? <laughs> just more Delta 8. Well, seriously, though, do you think this is just like a loophole so that, you know, they're going to be just selling this stuff in all these convenience stores and gas stations? A hundred percent it's a fucking loophole. Without a doubt, it's a loophole. Like, this is, this is, this shouldn't even be called a loophole. It should be called a fucking black hole because it's so fucking big. Why can't it be a white hole, Jason? They don't have those in space, Rico. Uh oh, uh oh. <laughs> just like who's going to be responsible for testing this honestly did did the article say that it, it's gonna didn't the article say it's gonna be re regulated and but but sold anywhere kind of a thing it's or? only regulated by their cbd rules not like the not the cannabis rules it's just for the hemp part so and it still has to be under 0.3 percent thc but as we know and we've seen in the market you could get like this thousand milligram gummy bear that will then have like 30 milligrams of thc you know so loopholes and loopholes and more loopholes life in america is all about loopholes that's why the trap will never die someone needs to make that a cannabis brand called loopholes maybe they'll be edible gummies discs or something you know what i'm saying hell yeah they do Minnesota doesn't want Mike Tyson's ears in there. It's probably because they've already heard too much. I love that. That's Let's hilarious. keep smoking the news. Oh, yeah. Coming next to the stage. Is it a bird? Is it a plane? No, it's a delivery van with a delivery smoother than DHL and a price point lower than FedEx. That's right. It's Clark Kent Delivery. Coming next to the stage is Christopher Smith. He's the communication strategist and publisher of the American Cannabis Report. What do you have this morning for us, Clark? Thanks for the intro, Jason. Good morning, Rico. Welcome back. And hello out there, Susan. We talked about going to war earlier this week, so this story's for you. It's 4th of July weekend. 
In addition to being Ms. Jenny's birthday, it is a day that always reminds me of the battles we've undertaken to win all these barbecues and cornhole games and fireworks. I googled advanced military systems yesterday and learned that President Biden is ready to invest another $800 million in Ukraine. Lockheed Martin just won $307 million contract for a new missile system, and the U.S. military is working on rail guns, body armor, robotic troops, computer systems, autonomous drones, laser weapons, and goggles that can see through vehicles, all part of keeping the lid on the whole world. Major investments in toys. What about the troops? You might know from previous stories, I'm very interested in veteran stories, those men and women who put on the, their lives on the line and made it back home many of them wounded. It turns out the Veterans Administration categorizes wounded veterans into healthcare priority groups. The highest priority group is for veterans who cannot work due to severe service-related disabilities and those with the Medal of Honor. There are more than 2 million men and women in this category. That's as many as in the whole city of Portland, Oregon. And the expenditures for them are the highest, as they should be. But there are several million more who are not completely blown up, who are trying to make their way in life with injuries caused by the massive trauma of war, and especially post-traumatic stress. It's insidious and hard to see, but it contributes to, even though the U.S. is not involved in any shooting wars at the moment, a shameful level of veteran suicides. I also came across a new interview by Brian Buckley. Now, Brian was my first interview in a series I did with the American Cannabis Report, and although I've since changed my strategy to focus on women and people of color. I'm absolutely proud to have spoken with this guy, Brian Buckley. What an incredible man. Best of the best. One of the most elite soldiers in the whole world. Brian left college in response to 9-11. He was a football player at Villanova. He became a Marine, then a Special Forces Marine, and then a Marine Raider, and then a team leader in the 1st Ranger Battalion. He's wounded in battle, so he's won a Purple Heart. He was given a Bronze Star for heroism and best of the best, like I said, and he suffers from post-traumatic stress, as you might expect, or as he puts it, he's 100% disabled. But you know you can't keep a good Marine down. A meeting a few years ago helped him develop a new mission to help other soldiers with PTSD and opiate addiction. He says, I had transitioned out of the military. I was just having a really rough time sleeping at night, and that's when someone was like, hey, you wanna try some cannabis? And when I took it, I felt like a warm blanket hit my brain. It was kind of like my mind was finally at peace. And in that same year, in a Southern California meeting with members of U.S. Congress, he made the case for cannabis potential in he helping heal the wounds of war. And they responded, I would, I, I would say right now, I'm sure it works, but I'm not going to walk out that door and make that statement in front of TV or anything. And then the light bulb went off from the article. Literally, I looked at a Paul Newman salad dressing bottle with its 100% profits going to charity. And I said, why don't we do 100% of our profits to help fund our research? So he had the Hellman, he'd already created the Hellman Valley Growing Company. And alongside, he then created a nonprofit called Battle Brothers Foundation. He's already channeled $57,000 into it. Uh, from profits from his company, and he needs just uh, just a few hundred thousand more to do the things that he needs to. The priority is to get studies moving forward quickly that will allow cannabis to be used by veterans with PTSD, because still, amazingly, the VA's position is that, quote, cannabis is not recommended for the treatment of PTSD. So I ask, with all the billions being spent on laser beams and Ukrainian missiles, how about a few fucking bucks to validate that God's favorite plant is effective at treating the hearts and minds of our greatest living heroes, our veterans?
Amen. Thank you for this article, Chris. Oh my goodness. Um, you know, 22 a day, 22 a day. That's the, the statistic that the movie Unprescribed was created on. Uh, 22 veterans commit suicide a day. Uh, and, and in states, the research shows that they have access to cannabis. Um, th those, those, those rates go down. And so thank you for this article, Chris. You're absolutely right. The United States government could afford, obviously, because they're spending all these millions of dollars on war um, to, to be able to put some funding towards the research of PTSD and, and cannabis. They actually can't afford these all of these different weapons that they're buying and whatnot. They just keep devaluing the American dollar and keep putting our country further in debt. Let's stay on the subject. Beautiful story, Chris. Christopher, excuse me. Beautiful fucking story. I couldn't agree with you more. We've got to take care of our vets. Let's keep it moving. This Long Beach-based IP lawyer and facial hair aficionados, the current CEO of Fruit Slabs, and hold it, holds it down powerfully for the team like a white Clarence Thomas. Up next, Brandon Dorsky. Wow, I, I find the Clarence Thomas reference a little offensive, but okay. Uh, my headline <laughs> is from MJ Biz Daily. It's, will a looming recession sink the cannabis industry or will it stay afloat by Bart Shaman? The national cannabis industry appears to be on much shakier ground than the last time a market downturn loomed when COVID began. While COVID was actually a boon to cannabis retail sales, the latest inflationary pressures, gas price hikes, interest rate increases, and other recession signals are proving to be a real kick in the teeth for cannabis businesses. Rising inflation is a major culprit of the squeeze as it tends to limit consumers' purchasing power, but also because it squeezes the profit margin for operators. Newer markets are likely to weather the storm better because supply and demand issues keep prices artificially high, whereas mature markets see prices race downward as more supply comes on board and more players enter the space. Mature markets face overproduction, falling wholesale prices, and stiff competition, and cannabis marketplaces in mature states are likely to fare much worse in this recession. We are already seeing businesses fold in places like California, Washington, Oregon, and Colorado. CFO for Sweet Leaf Madison Capital based in Colorado, Kevin Bush said, every state is its own story with a different regulatory structure. And the CEO of Bespoke Financial echoed that a little bit, but said marijuana stands out as one of the only industries where businesses are experiencing deflation, but believes that most companies will survive to 2023 or 2024. While the article did not address it, the practical reality is that an eighth of cannabis is really no more expensive today than it was 10 years ago in mature markets. The absence of federal form and the less than glowing outlook for quick change at the federal is definitely at the federal level is definitely making it harder for businesses to find capital too. Couple that with the falling in prices on flour and the increased input costs from inflation, and you have lots of pressure on operators in these mature markets. Market analysis suggests that cannabis consumers will end up turning to more bargain price products and take fewer chances on their selections. Skip Matzenbacher, CEO of Pacific Stone, a cannabis cultivator in Carpinteria said, we do think consumers will be less likely to try new products and stay with brands they know, like, and trust and offer great value for their dollar. He also noted that cannabis may not be recession proof, but did acknowledge that the tobacco industry and spirits industries often fare well in recessions. So cannabis businesses can hang their hat on that. 
The article did offer some tips for businesses to survive these tough times and suggest everyone look to where their market is headed rather than what is just immediately in front of them. Recommendations included having your business be vertically integrated, be constantly reviewing your profitability and margins via hard data, and some even suggested that operators should just focus on reducing their costs by at least 20% to main maintain competition. This is Brandon Dorsky reporting for the State of Cannabis News. I mean, in all recessions, there's two things people always buy, liquor and drugs. So I'm pretty sure it might get a little rough and rocky for cannabis companies and some cannabis businesses. But overall, people are still going to buy weed and smoke weed regardless of what the fuck's happening in the country. Strippers, too. Strip joints do well. Strip joints do do well. Support single moms. But what do you like think? Because we've obviously been facing all these taxes and stuff. Like, obviously, people will still buy cannabis, but who's going to be left for them to buy cannabis from? Is it just going to be all MSOs and there's going to be your favorite booth, Jason, and a rush to the bottom? You know? It's going to be tons of booth. Tons, tons, tons of booth because no one wants to pass safe banking. And so MSOs are going to be the only ones that can bank. And so they're going to be the only ones that get the loans. Strippers don't need safe banking. No, it's like they're taking away, like, they're giving us booth, they're taking away, they're lowering the nicotine for those people. I mean, I'm like, man, you're killing us, guys, raising the prices, gas, eek. Well, you know, I saw actually on the news, um, they were talking about the price of gas, and they actually said this on CNN, that it's all part of a new liberal world order. Oh, let's keep smoking that news. Coming up next, she's an attorney at law focused on bridging the gap between cannabis, entertainment, and psychedelics. Coming next to the stage, it's the G.I. Jane of the crew. No, no, Jason, it's it's Guy. No, I have Shalina next. Now we changed it up. We were ready for the gospel of Guy, Jason, if you don't mind bringing us some of that. No problem. I will bring you the gospel of Guy Record. Give me just one second. Coming next, this OG veteran and dope dads known and respected by peers as a steadfast defender of the culture, always first to stand up for the rights of the legacy operators, the co-founder and CEO of Papa and Barkley is coming to the stage next. Take a seat, y'all, and listen to the gospel of Gee Record. Thank you, Jason. Thanks, Liz and Rico. Good morning, everyone. So yeah, I'm closing it out again. I'm gonna try to keep it calm. But I'm reading an article, and it's actually, as I really read it now, it's an opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal. But let me start off by saying shame. And I also want to remind everybody on the call, words are powerful. We are in a fight for our democracy. We're trying to free prisoners. We're trying to get cannabis out there. But we have to be careful, okay? There are definite nefarious elements on both sides. And when we play into these distractive memes, we're not doing anybody a service. That being said, shame on the Wall Street Journal. The article reads, cannabis has its benefits, but the risks are real. It reminds me of another substance physicians have struggled to properly use, opioids. That's the title of this article in a major newspaper in 2020 fucking two. So regarding Allison Finley's cannabis and the violent crime surge op-ed June 7th, focusing on the inappropriate and medically dangerous use of Dangerous underage use of cannabis throws the baby out with a 
throws the baby out with the bathwater. I constantly see the benefits of cannabis amongst cancer patients. The solution, as with alcohol, tobacco, and narcotics, is education and regulation. But with cannabis users, essentially, but with cannabis users, essentially eliminate the risk of death by liver cirrhosis, delirium tremens, <laughs> lung cancer, and respiratory de depression. I favor an immediate removal of cannabis schedule one status and establishment of 24 as the legal age for all use of cannabis. So that's great. However, the article is, a, is, is, is basically putting out a headline that is scary for no reason because they only quote after this nice statement, which I think we can all agree, two doctors. One is B. Stevens Dudley from Nashville, Tennessee. I don't know why we listen to people from the South sometimes. And another one, Thomas Vecchio from Lakeland, Florida, and J Jason T. Kolb, MD from Kent, Ohio. These fools are going on to make statements that I just can't believe because I've actually been in the cannabis game for quite some time. So one says, Mr. Finley cites compelling evidence connecting chronic marijuana use by, rug by young people with a litany of me me mental disorders. But no matter how accurate she may be, there's something far stronger than an addict's compulsion to use, a politician's desire for tax dollars. Really? Generated through pot sales. I don't know about y'all, what politicians are on our side? The other dumb, as says, as an emergency physician who's also a board-certified addictive medicine, I see patients with cannabis-associated complications almost every shift. Bullshit. So again, here we have just straight-up misinformation. I am sorry, those doctors. Come find me. You are lying. That is not true about cannabis. Why are we lying? What is the incentive for these folks to get on and lie? I don't know that. And I also don't know what politician is lining themselves with pot with pot dollars because I don't see any help from politicians. Anyway, you all, enjoy the holiday weekend. I'm glad to close this out. And remember, unfortunately, right now, the most important thing for us to do is save our nation. And then perhaps we can worry about weed next. I'm Guy Rocourt reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Yeah. You're amazing. You're just amazing. Happy, happy fourth, dude. You're amazing. Thank you, Guy. That was just phenomenal. And I really wish we could comment on it and hear a little more, but we will go and take that independence and keep it going. So that was a great show. If you missed any of it, you can catch it anywhere you get your podcasts. So please subscribe and leave us a review. And a big thank you so much to all the correspondents that work so hard every day, comb through all the headlines and bring us just what we need to know. A huge thank you to Rico and Jason for co-producing this show and to the link master, Jaja Simone. Thank you audience so much for being an important part of our show. We wouldn't be here without you. So you've had your daily dose. Now go out there and make a difference. And I wanna let you know that we are going to be taking Independence Day off here at the State of Cannabis. So we'll be back on Tuesday. So we hope you enjoy your weekend and smoke it up, blaze it. Be safe. Fireworks everywhere. We collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable. Happy birthday, America. Join us every weekday, 9 a.m. Pacific time, for the State of Cannabis.